Good morning. Just so that Greg just said who I am, and just so there is no confusion, I am not Greg. My name is Ed. You can tell because I've got my neon black sneakers on. Or I have my version of skinny jeans. I did untuck my shirt, which is uncommon for me for a long sleeve shirt. And I've gone for the middle ground between Nate's, what Nate makes look great with that completely shaved head and whatever Greg calls that on the top of his head. I, I, I don't know what that is, and I, I think he's still trying to figure it out himself. So, um, I just want to thank the Lord for letting me teach today. I uh, don't do it very often, and that's okay by me. Um, and when I do, the Lord is good. He makes sure that everything works well, except for my thing here is not working very well at all. There we go. We got, now we got it coming up. Greg has asked me, as we've followed through in Daniel, to continue on right as we were in chapter 7, starting off with a new group of words, a new basic area of prophecy now to Daniel. Before, before it was more of the history, the life of Daniel, as Greg pointed out a couple of times. So we're going to be reading history and prophecy both, because to Daniel, it was prophecy. To us, a lot of what I'm going to be saying today is history, most of it, but not all of it. So we're going to be starting off in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. I want to read those verses through as we get, to, as we get going here. So if you have your Bible, or you can read it on the screen when it comes up. Daniel chapter 7, there we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. There before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. I was told, it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was think thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So we have these first eight verses on our way into the prophetic side of Daniel. We already know, as Greg pointed out, that 
the, the writing and the compilation of Daniel is not in chronological form. Because we see from the very reading of this, this, was in the, this vision came in the first year of Belshazzar. We've already known that in previous chapters we saw the end of Belshazzar. Daniel accompanied that part too when he saw the writing on the wall. So we know it's not in a very chronological order, but that's all right. God got it put down as he knew we needed to see it, as we'd be able to better understand what he has to say for us. And the previous five chapters were the accounts of the ministry of Daniel, his life, his history, his workings within a, within a system foreign to him, yet where God placed him for most of his life, whether he was in exile. So the remaining chapters are descriptions of the dreams and visions that Daniel had and that he would write down. We see that most of these he did not share with anybody other than what he wrote down and shared with us through his word. Some of the others he had to share with Nebuchadnezzar, much to his chagrin or embarrassment or even uh, worry about what would happen when he shared what was going to go on with Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw in some of those before. But Daniel had had these dreams and visions throughout his time in exile in Babylon. And it was now that he would have this, this vision, which we're going to look at, and it was a more comprehensive vision than the others. It was more gross, accompanying a larger span of time, where the others had more detail. When we saw the, the tree that he talked about, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar being that symbol of that tree where all the, the birds of the air would flock in. Uh, we saw about him becoming an animal on, on the ground. We saw specific details. Where here we're seeing a large scope of information about what Daniel was seeing as future and what we know to be, as for the most part, history. But they were collected here at the end of the book for a continuity of understanding, for our understanding, for the, for the, for the way in which it's taught, so the way when the prophecies are given, when this bit of information is talked to us, we're not trying to bounce back and forth between the life of Daniel and what he's talking about coming up. It's all put together here at the end of the, at the, end of the book. Um, the dating of this chapter takes place sometime before chapter 5, because we know that was Belshazzar's last year. It was before chapter 6, because that was Darius the Mede was in power at that point, so we know it was before that. Sometime in the first year of Belshazzar, and sometime between chapters 4 and 5, is when we see this vision occurring to Daniel. And, he, and Belshazzar, was, he was the one who was the successor to Nebuchadnezzar, as Nate pointed out, it was probably not a, a bloodline succession. It was probably some kind of a relative, an in-law, niece, cousin, whatever, don't know. But he was probably in some relation to Nabonicus, who was the king at the time. And so Belshazzar was really just babysitting the throne when he lost it for the Babylonian Empire. It says in verse 1 that he wrote down the details so they would not forget. How many people have had a dream, and they wake up, and they go, wow, it's a great dream. And they don't think about it for about 10 minutes, and they go, what did I dream about? We can't remember. I mean, God built this that way. If we, the, the dream sequence in our, in our nighttime is for just that. It's for sorting out things and kind of putting things in different order to help us cope with things. But we don't necessarily remember it 10 minutes after we wake up. The dream that you think you remember when you wake up has probably just occurred in that last stage of REM sleep. So if you don't get up immediately and write it down or write down the details, it's gone. And that's okay, because if all the dreams that we had would become a part of our long-term memory, what a confused life we would have. After a while, we'd be saying, what was real? What was a dream? Where am I supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be doing 
you know, whatever in that dream that was going on. We don't have that. But Daniel got up and he wrote it down because he did not want to forget. Good thinking on his part? Or was it God inspiring and saying, write this down because this is what I want my people to hear? And we know that's to be the case. So in that first verse, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there, excuse me, in verse 2, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of the heaven churning up the great sea. Churning it up, the four winds of heaven. When we see a storm coming in, a lot of times it's from the west here, the winds are coming in and they're prevailing from one direction, and they can be some pretty tempestuous, tumultuous storms that we see. Well, here we're talking about what Daniel looks at. He goes, there's four winds. Think of the power of a storm and what it's going to do when it's coming from four different directions, churning up, just making a mess of everything. And that's what is happening right here. He's seeing he's the four winds of heaven churning. Right. The power of this tempest possibly could represent God's sovereign power over what's happening on earth. It could also represent the satanic forces, which are constantly trying to make a mess of man's history, kind of be in, involved in there. It could be a compilation of both. It could be God allowing satanic forces to be interacting and, and making the, the political and the, the, the geographical things going on in our history and our lives a problem. But either way, it was a, a pointing out it was an ongoing struggle on earth. We see that there's a possibility of this when we look in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, and I'll just read it. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. So we know that there is forces, spiritual forces, that are at work in our lives. We don't see them. We can't touch them. We can't, we can't smell them. We don't know they're there other than we know they're real from the Word. I don't know if anybody's ever read the Peretti series of different books. He gives us a glimpse behind the scene. It's a novel, and it's fiction. I understand that. And it's, but it gives us an idea that there are spiritual forces at work constantly in our lives, and that we need to be aware of that. We need to make sure that we are in tune with God because there are spiritual forces out there that do not want us to have that in touch with God, that want us to be going in the wrong direction. So we see in here, it says that we hear of the great sea. Great Sea is always mentioned as the Mediterranean Sea. It's not Tiberius, it's not the Sea of Galilee, it's not the Adriatic, the Aegean, any of the seas in that area. They were not classified as the Great Sea. Because what the Mediterranean had over all of those is that they, all the empires that we're going to see talked about in these first eight verses, all had borders around the Mediterranean Sea somehow. At some time in their reigns, in their near kingdoms, they were, they were bordering along the Mediterranean Sea. So the Mediterranean Sea is a focal point of most of our history in this world. Look at what about 80% of the news on the, and today is. It's about what's going on near the Middle East or around the Mediterranean Sea or in some form or fashion in the geopolitical realm around that area. We don't read too much about Paraguay or Chile, any of those. We don't hear much about because that's not where it all has happened and that's not where it all is going to happen. So he's giving us the Great Sea as the, as the arena in which we're looking at and the empires which throughout history have been focused around that, that area. Each of these empires were different than the other. When we look at verse 3, taking that, it says, four great beasts 
each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Four great beasts. We don't know, you know, what Daniel saw in his dream. We have, sometimes we can have depictions of it. We don't know whether Daniel dreamed in technicolor. We don't know whether he, you know, dreamed about different things, but we know that he described some things. We remember looking back in Daniel chapter 2 when they had the statue. I don't know if that's, was the statue up there already? From Daniel chapter 2? Not yet. That was an image that Daniel had previous, and they had to share this with Nebuchadnezzar. And when we look at what that statue talks about, the head of gold, the chest of silver, the midsection of bronze, the iron legs, the iron and clay feet, all representing the different kingdoms that were going to be coming before uh, in the world and after what Daniel would talk about. They represented more than just the names of kingdoms or the, or the idea that there would be four different kingdoms. They showed the difference that these kingdoms would have. Obviously, the first one, the head of gold, this Babylonian empire. The Babylonian empire run by Nebuchadnezzar had its roots from hundreds of years before and coalescing various cultures, various information, various peoples together to make that Babylonian empire. And it was known as a very majestic, and a very uh, overpowering type of, of uh, kingdom. The chest of silver, we're going to see is another nation, but each one of these represents something different. More than just the comparative value of those kingdoms, more than the wealth that they amassed, more than what they were co contributing to history, but they were very, very different. And Daniel saw that because he saw that the beasts were different in each one of them. They represented the peoples, they represented customs, laws, and administrations that were all different. Different peoples because they came from different areas around the Mediterranean Sea. We're looking at uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon Empire further over. We're looking at other kingdoms which are further uh, towards Europe. So they, they represented different people groups. And out of that, they represented different customs. All of their background that was in there was poured into who they were as a people, who they were as a nation. They had different laws, obviously, because of who they were and what they had, what they had gone through. And they very, very much so had different administrations. When we look at the, the idea of what's going on in each of these, they represented themselves before the world very much differently. But all of them arose out of that tumultuous arena of the, of the Mediterranean Sea, and of that area where God was, had his hand and continually does have his hand. And each of them would be known as a great kingdom. So now Daniel has this other vision, as we've seen, about the four beasts. And we're going to continue as we start looking at each one of them. Again, these representations are just that. They're a man's idea of what they think they see, what they think they know. We don't know actually what Daniel saw other than the few words that he gives us about each of these beasts. We don't know if it's what we see up here. But this helps us visualize, and we are, we are people that do visualize things, so it does give us a sense of, of, of what we're looking at. And in verse 4 it says, The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until his wings were tore off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. Daniel was living in the time of this prophecy. He lived throughout that, the kingdom of the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar for almost 48 to 49 years of that. So he saw this beast in reality, who it was. The head of the gold, the majestic, the power, the splendor that it had. Uh, it was greater in many ways than all of the other empires because it was first, 
because of the background that it had. It was represented by what? The king of the beast, the lion. But it also had the king of the air and the eagle's wings. So it had the best of both in what it was and what it would represent to people. Uh, when we see in Jeremiah 4, 7, Jeremiah 49, 19 through 22, and these verses will be on later if you want to write them down. Just, I just referred to them because I was looking up the different references. Isaiah 5, 29, all use this imagery in relation to the Babylonian Empire. So it's not just something that just is capriciously thrown out there. God put it in the hearts of other prophets to know that this kingdom was like this, to know that the, this, this administration was going to act and be like that. You go to any museums that represent the different kingdoms throughout the world, you're going to see representations in statues or base reliefs of a winged lion. And they all represent the Babylonian Empire. The combination of the two beasts showed the strength and the speed by which Nebuchadnezzar made his conquests. He was quick, he was fast, and he was absolute. When he came in and took over and laid siege to Jerusalem, uh, took them back into captivity, into exile, mixed other races and populations in with the people they left, he was, it was for a purpose, so that he had the control over the both areas, where he took them to and where he had left them. But we're going to see in that same prophecy, in the same verse, that the wings were plucked from this lion. The countries of Lydia, Media, and Persia, all during the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, were starting to pull away. They didn't want to be that vassal state, paying the taxes, paying the tributes. That, so they continually started pulling away, making it more and more difficult for Nebuchadnezzar to keep a control on them. So it was plucking away that, what he had gained. Given the heart of a man and grounded, uh, of the grounding of the one beast, the eagle, we saw that already in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was taken and humbled by God. Given a year to repent, to change his ways, Daniel told them, you got a year, you got, you're going to have to change or something's going to happen. And it did happen. We saw then for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was on all fours, like an animal, eating off the ground. Until one day, he looked up to heaven and recognized, there is a being greater than me. Not that he ever truly repented, but he recognized the position that God had over him, that he wasn't the all in all. So the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar is seen in here in this prophecy, in what Daniel gave to him, what Daniel spoke to him prior to him wanting to, to, to repent, and what actually did happen to him. It was during that period of time that the that the, the empire started to crumble. There were no further advances in the Babylonian Empire, no further ground taken as he was humbled as a man. He was no longer this lion with wings and power and speed. It was just a kingdom that was starting to crumble around the edges as people were pulling back. And Daniel spoke about it in this prophecy. Verse 5, it says, And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear, it was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. That alone is a frightening type of description. We see that description of a, the second beast. It looks like a bear. And I, they, they represent that as a, I don't know, it's probably a Kodiak bear. I don't know, anybody here, a hunter? Brown bear, big bear, grizzly bear, doesn't matter. Probably one from the upper reaches of Asia, where they, were, where they got this depiction. But it is one that really represented the next kingdom 
the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel probably saw this coming, probably saw the beginnings of it towards the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life and the succession of the people in, in line with uh, uh, Nabonicus and, and then again Belshazzar. Uh, he, was, he was there literally at the end when he saw the writing on the wall when Belshazzar lost the kingdom because of who he was and the, 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 the lack of humility he had using the, the sacred goblets at, a, at an orgy that he had that would come out of the temple. So the cruelty and the thirst for blood was a hallmark of this next kingdom. They acted like a bear. When you look at the penchant for spoiling and rummaging around and through, if any of you have ever had the occasion to see either a video or in real life a bear coming down through the woods, they run roughshod over everything they see. They just tear it up, like it, don't like it, toss it aside. I've seen them pop open or popping open coolers just by tapping the sides, ripping open bear-proof uh, things. They are, um, they, that's their hallmark. They rob, they spoil, they pillage. That's the antics of a bear, and this is why God gave this imagery to Daniel for this particular kingdom. Jeremiah 51, 48 through 56 makes reference to these very things, that there would be a destroyer to come down and take care of the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. God speaks the truth in reality. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't give us what we think we want to hear. He doesn't tell us uh, ways in which he thinks we might change. He spells it out. He tells us in these imageries, he tells us in other prophecies what he wants us to do, what things are going to be like. And what are we going to do with those? So when we see that it's a bear, uh, we see that the three kingdoms, the three ribs in the bear's mouth, probably Cyrus, as in historical accounts, making quick work of consolidating the kingdom of Babylon, Medes, and the Persians. Being on what, raising up on one side, there can only be one king over all this, and that was to be Cyrus. So God, again, was t telling us the details without giving us a lot of details. As I mentioned earlier to someone we were talking about, people who, who pride themselves in knowing history and looking at historical things going on in this world, when they have read, some of them, when they have read these accounts, without knowing it's a Bible verse, without knowing it's a passage out of God's Word, look at this and say, yeah, that's a pretty good summary of the history for about a thousand years of this earth. You know, it really tells about, you know, that kingdom. Yeah, they were like that. Oh, yeah, that king was like that. These people were like that. Those customs, that administration acted that way. And they were astonished when they found out that this was written a thousand years before most of it had transpired, hundreds of years before some of them. They, they couldn't comprehend the fact that someone could get it so right, so accurate, that it was hearing God's word. And they most times reject it, like a lot of people in the world do. They look at it and say, eh, don't want to do that. There's a, a, a teacher uh, at a Fullerton, California, Chuck Swindoll, the pastor of a church there in California, gifted speaker, motivational speaker, goes on tour quite a bit, and for years he would speak about the God's Word, give the references, and people were eh, lukewarm about receiving it. And he couldn't understand why. It's because it was God's Word that they, didn't, they were rejecting. Not him, not what the Word said, the fact that it was God's Word. So he changed up it a little bit. He took the principles out of the word, posed them as these great ideas that he's come up with. Not that he came up with them, but these are great ideas and principles. And the people loved it. They said, we want copies of that. This is what we're going to teach our management skill, skills to all, all the people in our, in our companies. And then they found out later, 
oh, these are just Bible principles. These are things right out of God's Word, but they'd already committed. So Chuck Swindoll knew that people, just as we should know, that people want to hear the right thing. They just want to hear it on their own terms. And unfortunately, that's not what God wants. They have to be on God's terms. So we look at verse 6. We move on to the next beast. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. So we have another hybrid creature. I would make great stuff for the Avengers or all these movies now. They get all these creatures with all different stuff sprouting out of every part in their body, right? This represented the Greek empire that had been started and coalesced under Alexander the Great. The fact that it was a leopard with four wings and four heads. It doesn't say it had eagle's wings, it just said wings of a bird. Lesser in its majestic, in its, lesser in its power, lesser in its position in that realm. It had four heads. Some people say that it, because it moved in so many different directions, but we're going to see probably more of what those four heads truly meant. The leopard, which is smaller, faster, and more agile than other beasts, really represented the kingdom, the Greek kingdom and empire, under Alexander the Great. The speed at which Alexander the Great took the world, literally by storm, was astounding. And most military statisticians, most military uh, people who are looking at how to, how to wage war, look at what he did and say, we can't emulate that. We can't do that the way he did, because it's a different world. But he took everything west of Greece all the way to the river Ganges in India in 12 years, which is an astonishing feat. He took 30,000 men, as that was the largest force that he amassed at any given time for any campaign, and would go up against armies of 600,000 in the Medo-Persian army. But because he was agile, because he was fast, as, as the leopard talks about, the leopard is willing to take the chance. The leopard, knowing that it has the skills and the speed and the agility, will go up against a stronger beast. Take the risk. I might get a lucky shot. Well, Alexander the Great had those lucky shots. He took the world in 12 years. Didn't have anything to do after that. He died at 33 of uh, unsavory lifestyles, but we won't go there. But he outmaneuvered the Medo-Persian Empire, took it all, and when people look at this, as, was it just military cunning? Was it his prowess as a military genius? But the word says in the very last part of that verse 6, and it was given authority to rule. Who gives the ruler of the world an authority to rule? It's got to be God. God ordained that this would happen. Not that Alexander the Great was some great spiritual leader, but this is what God had ordained to happen. And it did, just as he, as he, as he said it would. So the sh short life of Alexander the Great, he had no heirs to enjoy the fruits of his labors. The four heads most likely talk about the four generals, which were his main driving force. When he died, before he died, he divvied it up all of this empire amongst the four generals and said, you rule this. There's no one person who can do it as good as I did. And that's the historical context, context that he thought he was that great. No one person can do what I've done. The four of you are going to have to divvy it up to be able to, to, to even try to hold on to it. Well, they did for a while. And they ruled for almost 200 years of the Greek Empire under these generals, and it started to decay. And as it oftentimes does, it started to fall apart. We look at the last one here. 
Verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other former beasts, and it had ten horns. The complexity of the beast that Daniel was looking at made a big impression on Daniel. All the others he was able to name, a lion, a bear, not lions and tigers and bears, a lion, a bear, a leopard. He was able to, uh, to process it and give a form that he thought that other people would recognize, and maybe that he recognized, added the hybrid portions and context on top of them. But this one shook Daniel. I think it really shook him to the core when he says it was terrifying and frightening in the things that it did and how it did it. It was unlike anything that he could put a name to. Where the lion has a majestic demeanor with its eagle's wings soaring, the bear for its cruelty and its spoiling tendencies, the leopard for its cunning agility and speed, none of these were a portion of that last beast. When we look at the perception on this side of history, when we look back on the Roman Empire, Daniel got it pretty close. Actually, God got it really close, and Daniel gave it to us pretty close as to what this Roman Empire would be like, how it would run its business. The ability in which it waged war and laid siege to whole nations, whole areas of land and track, it was, they did it exactly as God showed to Daniel. They crushed and devoured everything in his sight, and they trampled the rest. Within 130 years, they took control of all the known empires and held it for a long time, more so than any of the other empires that were out there. The efficiency of his government and the power of its military are great testimony to iron legs. I don't have iron legs now. I'm kind of standing on pins that are kind of soft and weakening from my knee surgeries. So I was telling Chrissy, if I fall over here, just come over and turn the mic off. So don't worry about me. I'll get up later. Just turn the mic off. But the efficiency of these iron legs, the efficiency by which the Roman government marched across the known world and held it in ways which had never been seen before. Historians are at odds with what actually happened to the Roman Empire. Some say it just decayed under its own corruption. Some say it was divided amongst different people. Some say the kingdoms eventually just kind of fell apart and fallen off as the Senate, which was the, 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 the linchpin of the Roman Empire, tended to want to have all of its own things in Rome and lower parts of France and the outer parts of, of Greece. Um, we don't really know. But what we do know is we're living still in the aftermath of that. We are still living under the, quote-unquote, unconquered Roman Empire. It just kind of fell away, and it's still out there in different forms. We see the ten, ten horns representing probably ten kingdoms which came out of this, you know, as, as Europe kind of divided into what we now know, know it to be. We see that it had three horns, and then one horn come up. But I'm going to leave all that interpretation to when Greg does it so that he has a fun time with understanding all that, because there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what they, have, what they are. In verse 8 it says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one that came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. It can mean a lot of different things. Some people have got it as the popedom, you know, having control of Rome and Italy and the lower parts of France and, like I said, Greece. The three horns, they've crumbled under one horn and speaking boastfully. I'm not going to go there because I don't know. 
it could still be in the process of happening. Some people think it's a 10-nation confederacy uh, of Europe and that it's falling apart and then one will take over and three will fall away. Altogether possible. We're still living in a time where we're going to see some of this, which is, was history before, is now still our future. And a lot of the prophecies that Daniel will have and continuing on in his book will be things that are still future to us. Uh, he got it right. God got it right. Amazing. Daniel reported it correctly. Daniel did not interpret it. He reported it correctly. When we see the feet of clay and iron, which was a hybrid mix of the Roman Empire then turning into various other nations, the clay being grounded, being smashed by a rock that was not carved by human hands. You know, undoubtedly that was Christ coming, Jesus coming into this world, a divinely carved rock, smashing this, making its presence known, being unable to withstand against this rock. We're still seeing that happen. And we're going to still see it happen until the very day that he returns again. So what do we make from all this information? A lot of historical information. I like to look at that and see just how much of it fits into what we know to be true and how we can say God gave us faithfully where he was going. You know, what did we do with it? What do we do with it? And when I looked at that, I, I asked God to give me just a, a couple of verses in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. It says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the dawn, day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origins in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter gives us a little bit of good advice, a little bit of guidance here, which I think is very important for us to latch on to. The prophet Daniel simply spoke what God showed him. Didn't try to put a spin on it. Didn't try to make it into sound bites so that we can digest it real quick for the evening news. He just gave us what God gave him. He got it darn accurate when we look at it. We are told that we have a more sure thing now than what the prophets had. When we look at what we do today, economic predictions, people base their whole fortunes, businesses base their whole uh, future on what an economic prediction might be of what's coming up and what's going to be good. And they base it and they dump all their investing with their monies, and more times than not, it fails. Donald likes to call our weathermen or weather liars because they predict weather, and more times than not, they don't get it right. It's either raining when it's not, cold when it's supposed to be warm, hot and she loves it. She likes this when she sees cactus next to the forecast because she knows it's going to be hot. But they don't get it right. Yet we base our daily activities on what the weather is going to be like outside. And they don't get it right. Nearly as much as God did all the time. Um, what, did you, what did Daniel do? I mean, when you think about it, when he got this prophecy, what do you think he did with it? He wrote it down. We know that. He may have shared it with his contemporaries of the day. He didn't share it with the kings. 
Let's say that he did that. But he passed it down to us. What do you think the people over the hundreds of years that following this, who read these prophecies as they started to become history, as, they were, as God was faithful in giving the accurate way and things would happen, what did these people do with it? Many rejected it. Many just said, good guess. I don't believe it. You know, I don't think he got it as right as he could. What difference did it make in their lives? What difference does it make in our lives? We've got another thousand years tacked on to all this, and 2,000 years to these prophecies. What difference is it making in our lives? When we look at the faithfulness of God's word, when we see what Peter just talked about, says, what are we doing with the more sure things in our hands? Is it changing our lives? Is it helping us to understand? I can only repeat what Peter said there in that, those few verses. We would do well to pay attention to it. Are we paying attention to God's word? Are we following it as closely as we are following economic predictions, as closely as we're following the weather predictions? Are we basing our lives on God's word rather than what man says is going to happen? If we're not, we're choosing the wrong thing. God's word is what we need to follow. On the screen, I'll have listed all the um, references that I made. If you want to write them down, I just ran through them, and I use them as a reference, but they're there so that if you want to copy down, go back and check my work. I appreciate it. Do so. Check God's work. It's not my work. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and accurate. We thank you that you have seen fit to pass it down to us through thousands of years. Lord, that we have it to base our lives on. What we do with it, Lord, you have given us that free will. You have given us the ability to choose it or reject it. Lord, I pray that as we hear it more and more, as we are caused to digest it, Lord, as we see your life through this, your son Jesus, Lord, as we can see how he wanted us to live and to act in his mold, help us, Lord, to do just that, that we would glorify you with the way we live by the way in which we perform our lives in accordance with your scripture. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.